Outside his English histories, Shakespeare rarely set his plays in England, preferring foreign locations, Italy, Spain, Greece, Cyprus, and the Mediterranean, as well as the ancient cities of what we now call North Africa, Turkey, and Syria. In the same way that women were performed by boys in female costume, African, Middle Eastern, Hispanic, and Jewish characters in Shakespeare's plays were staged by white men using a series of racial symbols and stereotypes. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? But how did Shakespeare's original audiences conceive race and racial difference? And how has this understanding changed? Conversations about race in Shakespeare are still relatively uncommon outside the Academy. Many devotees of Shakespeare remain unwilling to interrogate why some of Shakespeare's most beloved plays feature troubling racial language, or why his use of racist jokes can still provoke laughter in packed theatres. But we needn't fear examining these things. It doesn't necessarily make Shakespeare a racist. Joining me today is Professor Farah Karam Cooper of King's College London and co-director of Education and Research at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. Her new book, The Great White Bard, looks at Shakespeare's depiction of both race and racism, asking if Shakespeare can truly be called universal if we are afraid to examine and question his construction of race. Professor Karen Cooper, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted that you can be here. So we're going to be thinking about the depictions of race and the prevalence of racism in Shakespeare's work. Is it there? We're going to be talking about that. But let's start by thinking about the context of the time. Whenever Shakespeare was portrayed in his lifetime, the actors were all white and they were all men. So how were non-white characters constructed on stage? We often talk about, when we talk about racial impersonation, racial prosthetics. So essentially that means that there were lots of different devices that actors had at their disposal to play any part, really. So for example, boy actors played the parts of women. So they had makeup, they had wigs, they had gowns and dresses and all sorts of female accoutrement. If you're playing a character like a Moor, a Black African, you would still use makeup. You would have a combination of perhaps sometimes walnuts ground into a paste can make a sort of black ink. Or you could use soot from a lamp. That's been in the documents as well. But we do know for a fact that they would have used makeup. Now, there's some theories that actually, I suppose, textiles might be used to do arms and legs. You might wear tights or gloves or something that is black so that you can depict your entire body in blackness. So that's one element of racial impersonation. The other thing might be how you move and how you speak. And actually, these are things that we're only just now beginning to investigate. We've never really thought before in theater historiography about how actors might have moved and spoken if they were playing racialized characters. And now that kind of work is being done. So I've written, for example, about gesture. So what kind of gestures might Shakespeare's lead actor, Richard Burbage, have used to play the part of Othello? And that's something we can only theorize about. And textually, Shakespeare's plays seem to conceive of racial difference beyond physical appearance. But if they're using such cosmetics as you've just been describing, blackface, in other words, that would seem to limit a discussion of race in Shakespeare to 
the specific binary of black and white. So I'm wondering how did Shakespeare's cast create Jewish, Hispanic, indigenous characters? How do they factor into this? First of all, there's a lot of disagreement in the scholarly world how Jewish people might be depicted. So there are some references, for example, in The Merchant of Venice, where he talks about his Jewish gabardine. What does that look like? We don't really know what that looks like. We know that in England at the time that Jews were not meant to be living there. So there was no sort of rule in England about how Jews should be dressed, unlike, for example, in Venice or elsewhere in Europe. So it's unclear I lean on the side of prosthetic noses because there are references, for example, in Marlowe's play, The Jew of Malta. We do know that was an early stereotype depicted in a manuscript in 1277. And so that might have been. Some people have argued that Jews might have worn red beards, for example, or red wigs. It's hard to say. And I think a lot of people avoided that conversation because it steeps you in stereotype. But also other kinds of religions, like there's a lot of references to Turks and Islamic characters, and they would have been depicted with props like turbans and scimitars, for example. And so that would signal to an audience what part of the world we're supposed to be thinking about. So yes, I think you're absolutely right that it isn't just about color-based race. Race very much meant in that time period culture, geography, religion as well. It's very interesting what you say, that there's little Jewish presence in London at the time. And what you've described really sounds like depictions based on racial stereotypes, even a tradition of them from the 13th century. This is interesting because I suppose they don't have anything else to go to. They don't have any other framework. Today, when you see The Merchant of Venice performed, much of the anti-Semitic language is cut, but it suggests actually that it is there. Both in how they're depicted and in the text, we are seeing a form of racism present in regard to Jewish people. And we'll come and look at some other categories in a second. But certainly with regard to anti-Semitism, it's certainly present, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think what Shakespeare's doing is drawing attention to medieval anti-Semitism, because really it was founded in this period when Jews did live in England and were heavily legislated. And a lot of the sort of stereotypes and myths about Judaism were cultivated and generated in that time. And in Shakespeare's time, it was really unique in that there were officially no Jews living in England. So they were all drawing from hearsay, which is what the play is really thinking about in many ways. The other point I wanted to pick up on that you raise was this idea that we've got boy players playing female roles and wearing makeup, presumably lead-based paint, to whiten their faces. So whiteness is performative as well. How do you think this factors into a discussion of the racial binary that we see in plays like Othello? The racial binary is really dominant in plays throughout the period, as well as the very explicit plays about race like Othello. And actually, that's, again, something born out of the medieval period where you see depictions of Christianity binarized in color coding like white and black, angels depicted as white, Mary depicted as pearly white, a kind of glistening white. And then you have these huge frescoes with devils and demons portrayed in blackness. And people still argue, oh, that's just metaphor. But metaphor was very powerful, particularly iconographic metaphor in that time period. And I wonder how this was received at the time. And Perhaps we don't know, but given that people of colour were part of London in the 16th century, may not have been huge numbers, but they were present, 
and there's also foreign tourists visiting the playhouses. Does this possibility that the audience watching Shakespeare, that may not have been exclusively white, change how we view the construction of race in its original performances? Yeah, I'm so glad that you say that because that's the big thing that we miss out all the time when we're thinking about Shakespeare's audiences. There's a lot of people who've done lots of research on Shakespeare's audiences. And yes, they have raised the fact that there are audiences from Europe, especially. So we know that there were lots of tourists in the playhouses at the time. But also a lot of Europeans had migrated to London and were living in communities around Southwark. But also, what if there were Black people in the audience when Richard Burbage is staging Othello? What, how do you account for that experience of watching? So I think that there's more work that we need to do now that we know that there's evidence for people living in London from all parts of the world. I do not believe for a second that audience was homogeneously white. Yes, it would make no sense, because even the numbers we have are the tip of the iceberg. They're people who happen to appear in the records for some reason, quite often to do with baptism. So it suggests that the audience really must have included people of colour. Absolutely. And those theatres were accessible for people all across the social scope, the landscape. So if you were working class, you could get in by just paying a penny. So it didn't matter what part of the social strata you're from, you can get to the playhouse. I'd like to ask you about the construction of non-white characters and whether it alters in Shakespeare's comedies and tragedies. Is it changed by the genre? I think if you're reading the plays through the lens of race, then yes, you do get different kinds of characterizations, different kinds of language, and the language is doing very different things. In the tragedies, for example, you've got very explicit racialized characters like Othello and Aaron the Moor. And then you get to comedies, which don't seem to be about race at all. But then you find references to Ethiopes, and usually in quite a derogatory context, which suggests that actually anti-Black racism is a point of humor in early modern England. So that's a common joke that Shakespeare uses in some of his comedies, like As You Like It and Two Gentlemen of Verona. I'd like to ask you what you think we should do with these today as well, because quite often we come across colorblind productions that would seem to ask an audience to forget about race rather than to actively engage with it. I'm sure this is very much a well-meaning attempt, but do you think it's ultimately reductive in trying to say that race and racism doesn't feature in Shakespeare? Yeah, it's really reductive. In my book, I write about the fact that Shakespeare has been lauded as this icon of English excellence and white English excellence. And it's really hard for some people to see Shakespeare in any other light other than a golden one. But actually, I think the real way to engage with Shakespeare is by unpacking some of these difficulties of the language, whether it's racism or misogyny or any other kind of prejudice that you see in these texts. And when you do that, you're not saying Shakespeare was racist because we can't determine that. We didn't even know whether he was Catholic or Protestant. So how can we determine with any certainty that he himself was racist? And these plays are not necessarily biographical charts of his life or his ideology, but racism is detectable there. And to sit in a classroom with a group of students, for example, that are diverse from across the spectrum, and then look at some of these anti-Black tropes and not address them 
is more damaging than addressing them would be. And the same thing is true in, in a theater production or in a rehearsal room. A lot of actors, particularly actors of color, want to talk about that language or want to cut that language. And so it's up to the director and the actors to work together to see what purpose that language is actually serving the story that they're trying to tell. That's very interesting because, of course, if we come across it as racist humour, the first instinct might be that we remove it and that's a perfectly valid response. But there's also a possibility that Shakespeare is drawing attention to this by including it. And so perhaps there's also a way to engage with and challenge offensive humour without pretending it's not there. Yeah, 100%. I think what's really interesting is there was a production at the Globe of A Midsummer Night's Dream a few years ago in which they were in the rehearsal room talking about, should we cut the line where Lysander says to Hermia after he's fallen in love with somebody else because of the love juice, away Ethiop. And the actors playing that part were actors of color. And the woman playing Hermia was a dark-skinned Black woman. And they decided to keep that line. And so they played it in such a way as to objectify the word. And the other actors reacted in a way with shock. And that made the whole audience react with shock. You could hear people actually gasping as if they'd been punched in the stomach. That was an extraordinary moment where everyone realized there was deep racism in that play. I think that's exciting in the sense that it doesn't give Shakespeare a pass, but it makes you think twice about the plays that we think we know. That's excellent. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Now, when we think of black men in Shakespeare, Othello is going to be the first one who 
springs to mind, I imagine. But I'd like to talk a little bit about Aaron in Titus Andronicus, if we can. This is a character who delivers what has been called the very first black power speech. And if we think about Othello and Aaron, do you think it's unusual that Shakespeare wrote such different interpretations of black men in what was still predominantly a white society? I think it is unusual. I suppose it speaks to his exploration, his interest in Black identity. He shows across his career that he is interested in that. And we don't know why. Is it because he knew Black people or is it because he was really curious about global encounters and travel, which was something that was a buzz at court in those days? So it's really hard to say why, but he was definitely interested in exploring and evolving his perception of Black identity. Some people have argued that it's all stereotype or a white fantasy of Blackness, which is definitely true to a certain extent. And certainly Aaron is constructed of a range of Black stereotypes that date back to the medieval period and medieval drama in particular. But then those stereotypes get subverted in some of his speeches and the fact that he's given quite a lot of speeches to speak directly to the audience, which means that you've established a relationship with him. And then also you can see him completely besotted with his own child. So there's a black child on stage and you see this notion of black lineage and black love. And that is something that seems really shocking in terms of Shakespeare's other contemporaries who were writing about Black characters. And then, of course, Othello, you get a whole other dimension because you've got somebody who's very prominent in society who's not outcast. And so you really get a sense of his interest in what happens when multiracial identities converge in these huge mercantile economies. We know that at the time, people of colour were marrying white people in London. But both Othello and Titus Andronicus feature interracial couples with tragic fates and contain racial stereotypes and racist language. The description of the tender fair and happy Desdemona against Othello's black devil springs to mind. Do you think that what we see here is reflecting a very real tension felt about interracial marriage at the time? I think there would have been, absolutely. And I think people had no qualms, for example, back then being sexist or misogynistic or racist. They didn't think about it in the same way that we do. But there was also a real weird paradoxical acceptance of interraciality to a certain extent. It's really hard to say one way or another, Elizabethan society was a racist society. I suppose when you think about conventionally, Or I suppose if you think about in terms of how we feel today, yes, it was. But also you do have these moments where you see in the parish registers, black and white people getting married to each other and having children. And I think what Shakespeare does with his interracial relationships is really demonstrate how those relationships are damaged by the structures in society that don't enable them, that don't accommodate or account for them. For example, in Othello, Venice is very tolerant, but the elite Venetians like Brabantio and the Duke, etc., cared a lot about blood purity, as the elite Elizabethans would have too. And so what happens when you invite a stranger in because that stranger is able to provide something for your society and enable you as a society to thrive, but then wants to marry your daughter? That's the dilemma at the heart of the play. And I suppose this speaks to 
different ideas in the scholarship about what we can see in terms of the nature of racism before race-based slavery becomes part of culture and a practice, particularly in the 17th century, though of course it's starting in the 16th century. I've had a previous guest who's argued that race isn't conceived in the same way before that happens. It doesn't have the same associations. But we do see Shakespeare addressing these questions. We've got the Tempest. How does he interrogate colonialism? It's very difficult to say race was seen exactly the same way as it was back then, because a lot has happened. But race and concepts of racial formation are ever evolving. So it's just an evolution as opposed to something that started in the 18th century. Race-based slave trading was going on in Europe from the 15th century with Portugal and Spain, and England was very aware of this. And so it wasn't something that just occurred at the end of the 17th century in England. It was something that they worked towards. Married to that is the huge fervor for exploration and trade. And you can see that in all the travel literature, particularly Hacklett's sort of collation of all the travel writing that had emerged up to that point. And in his great tome, you get the sense that there is a promotion of Englishness around the world. And so this proto-colonial desire can be detected in Elizabeth's time. And certainly, I think, by the time Shakespeare writes The Tempest, you've already got colonial outposts in America and elsewhere. And Shakespeare is really interested in what happens when a so-called civilized society comes into contact with a non-civilized individual or set of individuals. And you see him playing with that a little bit in his festive comedies when he's got aristocrats going out to the forest and meeting rustic clowns. And you can see that kind of clashing happening there. But he really takes it to another level in The Tempest. So it is absolutely a play about that colonial encounter. That's all very helpful. And you're absolutely right, of course. We've got the East India Company in 1600, Virginia in 1609. You know, yeah. these things are happening and they're carrying these ideas of superiority with them. Yeah. We also have Caliban, of course, in The Tempest, who is an indigenous man enslaved to Prospero and accused of rape That's right. by Prospero's daughter, Miranda. Now, putting it as bluntly as that, it becomes quite chilling because you think about the very real history of violence against black men over the centuries since who have been accused of raping white women. How does race factor into Shakespeare's depictions of violence? That's such a great question, because just going back to Aaron the Moor, for example, Titus Andronicus is his most violent play, his most explicitly violent play. And a lot of the sort of violent acts that happen are instigated or devised or provoked by Aaron. And so you do see this link between blackness, violence, or criminality. And that link is rooted in stereotypes around the devil, around Lucifer, who is considered the first criminal and depictions of devils on medieval stages always were in blackface. So this is something that goes very deep and Shakespeare is drawing on that. And you're right, it's absolutely chilling to think about that accusation of rape. And it's an accusation of a desire to rape, right? He says, you wanted to rape Miranda. And then it's very difficult for us to establish empathy with one character 
Caliban in that moment because he says, yeah, and I wish I had people the island with more people like me. Does he say that in a moment of rage or revenge for the way he's been treated? It's a really good question. Yes. How you play that determines how the audience receives it. It's always the case with Shakespeare. There are so many ways of playing it, aren't there? Yeah. And I think that's why directors and actors productions are so vital to the interpretation of these plays. So far, we've only talked about men as non-white characters. Can we talk about Cleopatra? This is a role that, as you say in your book, continued to be performed by white actors long after Othello started being played by men of colour. Why do you think there is so much still contradictory opinion over whether Cleopatra was a black woman in Shakespeare's text, despite what would seem to be a pretty definitive description of her tawny skin? For me, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is one of the best female parts. And there aren't that many great parts for women in Shakespeare when you think about it, which is why gender blind casting has become so popular now, because it gives female actors an opportunity to really get their teeth into big roles. But Cleopatra is already there. And I think great actresses like Judy Dench and Helen Mirren, of course, want to have their go at Shakespeare's best female part. So I think that has something to do with it. I also think in our field, we talk a lot about white property and how Shakespeare is a kind of property of whiteness, right? Shakespeare is owned by white people. And so when actors of color are engaging with these texts that really they're just on loan, they don't really belong to us. And that's a myth I want to bust in my book. But I think Cleopatra is one of those characters that belongs to whiteness. And it was seen that way for centuries. I think in Shakespeare's own time, certainly on the continent in the Renaissance, there are lots of portraits of Cleopatra, and she's often pearly white, the fair color, which is the most elite form of whiteness. And Shakespeare sets up in his play this binary between the white women of Rome and Cleopatra. And the white women of Rome are described in this way as being fair and virtuous. And Cleopatra is described in much more sensual, uh, maybe orientalist terms. And that sensuality is part of the key to the strength of her character. Her strength is linked to her femininity, it's linked to her sexuality. Do you think it would be fair to say then that the play is representative of a historical fetishization? of black women's bodies. If we think about how English colonists were describing African and indigenous women across the Americas in their accounts, does it fit in that genre of that sort of mode of thought? I 100% think so. I think even in some of the classical descriptions of her, you get that as well. And so this is something that is timeless. And I compared it to a modern interview with a white supremacist who talked about how he likes to watch black pornography to get ideas, but he would only marry a white woman. And so this notion of the sort of over-sexualized black woman as a fantasy that's fetishized is still very much with us. And yeah, you do see that in this play and certainly reactions to this play. A lot of the early 20th century criticism is really interesting to read as well. So what should we conclude then about Shakespeare's interpretation of non-white female characters versus that of his male characters? Again, I think Shakespeare is not conclusive. I think a lot of women of color, including myself, feel seen and heard in his plays because he talks a lot about dark ladies. He juxtaposes dark women with white women, lighter women, for example, in his comedies. 
And the sonnets, of course, half of them are dedicated to a dark lady. And so he himself seems to be a fetishist of dark women. And that in itself is a form of misogynoir. But at the same time, he gives them breadth and depth and an extraordinary capacities like Cleopatra. It is inconclusive. And often I say Shakespeare doesn't give you answers. He just gives you more questions. Well, my final question then, how important do you think it is that discussions of race and racism in Shakespeare's plays continue to be had if we want a future where Shakespeare remains relevant? I think it's essential because for anything, the English classroom where Shakespeare is taught are drilled into students at GCSE and A-level. And our classrooms are diverse, racially diverse and diverse in many other ways. And Shakespeare is speaking to experiences of being racialized. And so we need to find ways to unpack that and keep Shakespeare part of the conversation, particularly when we are concerned about race and the division between races in our own moment. I think it can really be a useful workhorse for thinking through our toughest questions. Thank you so much. I really want to urge those who are interested in exploring this question further to pick up your really nuanced and sensitive book about this, The Great White Bard. It's a really wonderful book and it's been wonderful just to start unpicking some of all the content of that wonderful book here today. Thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.